I'm Sarah Lindquist from Fuse. We're an early stage venture firm based right here in the Pacific Northwest. And just like the founders in our portfolio, we are just getting started. We believe that founders deserve more, more urgency, more community, more expertise, more reliability, more of everything. And we aim to deliver. In this Operational Excellence episode, we sit down with Fuse LP Eric Johnson. Eric was the CEO of Nintex for five years and was the CFO prior to that. Nintex generates $250 million plus ARR and is recently valued at $2 billion. Eric knows what it takes to build an execution machine. Listen in as he and Fuse GP Brendan Wales discuss how to apply operating tactics from a profitable, high-growth software business to early-stage startups. Let's get started. Eric, thank you again for making the time this morning. Yeah, happy to help, Brendan. Really appreciate it. You're the third guest as a part of our webinar series, and we're just so lucky to have you. You've got a really unique perspective, having been the CEO of a very large private equity-backed company. And I think that the reason why we wanted to have you on is you were running Nintex for five years. Before that, you were the CFO for many years. And the most unique thing about Nintex is not only was it profitable, but it grew extremely fast. And not all private equity-backed companies have that scale. There's always more of a trade-off on profits and growth, but it seems like you were able to do both really well. We'd love to just learn a lot from how you thought about managing costs and growth at the same time and the little tricks of the trade. And I think you obviously had some great investors that were on your board and that were supporting you. And I'm sure there was no shortage of pressure along those lines and you were able to manage that well too. So I think the best way to start is just for folks to hear your background. How did you fall into the the CEO role? And then we can hop into some questions. So I've worked about 25 years, started working full-time in 1998. Front part of the career, I was in finance and I studied finance and got into that because I had a dad who was a IT executive, the head of IT for a super large uh, Fortune 500 transportation company. And he was like, look, if you want to run a business or you want to own a business someday, finance is the language of business. So study finance and accounting, get in there and build from there. So I, I never did it because I wanted to be a finance person at the end goal, but I wanted to understand business and be able to lead and drive. And so the first several years of my career were in operational finance roles, helping some component of the business. And the nice part about that is you get to partner with operational leaders and you get to learn different components. And so whether it was working in the customer success division, working with sales, working on corporate activities, supporting M&A, I had exposure to a lot of different topics. And then I was about, I think I was about 30 years old. So I'd made more, maybe eight or nine years. And I had the opportunity to become the VP of sales ops at Serena Software. We were about 250 million a year in sales. We had been public. We took it private with Silver Lake. We had a new, I think it was called the SVP of field operations came in. So everything customer facing he ran. And he wanted a partner to build up the operational process, metric systems, and be his partner. So I moved out of finance into that. And that was a career-changing move. It was not something most people would be willing to do. But I ended up running renewal sales, sales training, sales operations, and a little bit of inside sales. And that experience of being with customers, being in the field... That was transformative for my career. After that, I ended up at a place called Jive Software, which was very fast growing. Uh, Sequoia did the A, B, and C rounds. Kleiner was in the C. So we had tier one, big scale VCs. 
We were super sexy, fast growing. We took the company public eight months after I joined. We went in about a year, about two years, we went from about 50 million in sales to, I think we were about 180 when I left. I got a lot out of that experience. And at that company, I actually owned both finance and sales ops. And so they were hiring for two VPs. They realized they had a synergy opportunity when they recruited me that I could do both. Yeah, and That was a great experience. And then that turned in to spent four years as the CFO of Mintex. It was super operational at various points in time on sales ops, customer success or support, as we called it at the time, HR, some other functions. And so I was always very business oriented. And then when Tomo Bravo invested, they thought existing CEO was maybe not as interested in some of the things they wanted to do. And so they were like, hey, we'd actually like you to run it, not the other guy. Slightly awkward. My boss is a great guy at the time and still a very good friend of mine and a mentor. So he was great though. He was like, what for what they want to do, I, I think that's probably not a bad idea. Super supportive. And then had the opportunity to become CEO. We had a very, very fruitful partnership together. Toma Bravo and our team worked together at, with them as the lead sponsor for three years and eight months. We delivered a giant return for them and everybody. We were the number one performing company in Toma Bravo Discover One Fund. My career's had a mix of things, but I will say the reason I, I had an opportunity to do the CEO job and that I was able to do it well, in large part was the fact that I did have a wide variety of experience. And by the time I got the role, I had been exposed to a lot of different things. And then it's always a team effort, right? And no one is successful on their own. We have a phenomenal, still do to this day, even though I'm not there every day anymore. And Intex is a great team. It's a team from every angle whether it's the internal team, it's the supporting team of advisors, it's the investors, it's a really good team. Yeah, that's great. And if I were to describe your career, just from that story, it's well-rounded. A lot of the CEOs that run our companies, they're the founders and the visionaries, but maybe they haven't run you know, a sales or they haven't run even renewals. And you definitely understand a lot of that comes with running a software company. I think one of the most unique things here is that you were also working at a high growth venture backed startup and then moving to private equity backed company. If you were to sort of compare and contrast, what would be, I guess, the good things and the bad things from each? Because we're obviously all early stage venture backed companies, but obviously a lot to learn from both. Yeah. So I would say the good on the venture side of the time of my career, the three or so years I spent at Jive, we were hyper-focused on growth. And so it's all about growth and that has some goodness to it. I'd say we were in a transitional phase there where we were becoming more scale. So I showed up, we were just a little under 50 million. That's a decent sized business. We were really quickly above a hundred and then getting close to 200. So I think the focus on growth from a certain angle is really good. I think sometimes the part that gets lost and what I've enjoyed about the private equity world is I think long-term growth at any price is not so good. And the challenge with only thinking of growth is that if growth ever slows down, then there's not a lot there. And I think in the private equity world, where you're dealing typically businesses a little bit more scale, you tend to balance growth and profit. And you got to think about both and you got to think about the efficiency of the growth. I think sometimes one thing that has gone a little sideways in the US venture world is that it's only growth. And then you get to these seasons that are tougher. And now you have a lot of companies with a lot of problems. And I even think when you are going to focus with growth being primary, thinking about the efficiency of the growth is super important because you'll actually get better growth. And if you just throw every dollar out there and are trying every little thing and not thinking about the efficiency, I think it allows a lot of weakness to exist in business. 
that's one of the things I've definitely taken away from the various experiences is to really think through the efficiency and make those hard decisions. Sometimes when you've got a lot of capital and you're just thinking about growth, you can let a lot of problems exist in the business that really, if you had to run it differently, wouldn't exist. Like the founders of Nintex, they were in Australia. It was a very different world back when they started the company and they had a different business. Nintex came out of a systems integration business. They didn't have the luxury or the opportunity of plentiful venture funding. And so they had to create a business that was very efficient from the start. And so when I joined, we were growing over 30% a year and super profitable and had never taken venture capital, never taken, well, actually to be clear on this, never taken primary growth capital. Yeah, There definitely was some transactions that occurred over time, but they were not to grow. They weren't to fund operations. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point around just what you're hanging your hat on as a CEO and as a team when growth is the is the only thing. And because you're losing money, a lot of venture-backed companies, it is the only thing really. And then the problem is when you miss your growth targets, like the losses are compounding to a degree, right? Because it just it's, it goes the opposite way on the losses. Whereas for y'all, if you're a profitable company, it's just maybe a little less earnings or maybe even more earnings because you didn't spend as much money on go-to-market or whatever it may be because you were going after that that more efficient growth. As it relates to profitability, there at some point needs to be some framework around where and where not you're going to stretch on hiring great people mm-hmm. and talent because yeah, you were, let's say you're doing a couple hundred million dollars of revenue or $50 million of revenue. There's a point where you just can't stretch. What was your sort of framework around recruiting and trying to get certain degrees of talent? And we've talked a little bit about this, but how that evolved over time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I got a really good contrast because Jive was hyper sexy tier one venture funded, right? And, and we were Palo Alto based with a lot of people also in Portland. So we tended to pay higher and you know, we were swinging for the moon. And so we were selling, Hey, we're going to go create you know, the next Google. And that's a very unique thing. And that only works when you just got it really rolling. That is hard to do. And I, w- I would not advocate that as the general approach at Nintex was really different because we weren't well-known, especially in the earlier years. And so we had to really think about every position, what we could afford to invest, what kind of person could really do what we needed. And oftentimes we were looking for talent a little off the map. And that could be the location. That could also be people that thought differently. Someone who was a mercenary and only cared about current comp, most money, they weren't going to join our team. They just weren't. And so what we built over time was a very, and it, and it started before I was there and continued on. And I hopefully made it a little bit better with our team, but we made a certain place to work. And so our yeah. culture was very strong. It was very clear. We had a great way of articulating it. And so for a certain type of person that wanted to work in a very positive environment, wanted to be with other really good people, wanted to contribute as a team, work in a place that was really collegial and collaborative, those people fit in the company. And they weren't the people who were necessarily trying to maximize current compensation or even maybe even total compensation. That's not everyone. And then I'd say the other thing we did and something I always thought about, one of my board members used to say from a couple of seasons ago is you have to think about which roles you're maybe going to invest more in. So we certainly had some people in the company who we made bigger investments in because we felt they were in a critical thing, could bring unique value to the company, but we didn't do that everywhere because we couldn't afford to. And so I think, but in general, I would say because of the culture, we were able to hire sometimes people that when the press release would go out, 
or they heard we got that person to come, people go, EJ, how did you get them to come? Well, we got them to come because of the environment. Like we proved it over time and our reputation was strong enough in the market that people would work at our place that otherwise didn't make sense. I literally have had people over the years, especially more senior people who mm-hmm. were willing to walk away, effectively take like 80% annual cash comp reductions. So mm-hmm. they may have been in companies where they were getting their stock sold every year. Right. They would come into our environment because they wanted something different. They wanted to be in a different place. They aligned with what we were doing. They believed in where we were taking the company and they would come work with us. We had a lot of people in the middle and lower tiers who could have any day went out and got 20 to 40% raises, but they wanted to be in our organization. They knew how different it was. And that was a unique advantage. I mean, that's part of the reason why the company is so profitable is we had such a good place and we do have such a good place to work. Right. Well, our first webinar that we did was with Natalie McGrath, who was the head of people at Coinbase from 10 to 800 people. And she said the number one thing for success at Coinbase was had the person worked at a startup before, <laughs> because coming into Coinbase, obviously, it was growing really quickly. And had they not, it, people would kind of eject out right after getting hired. Yeah. When you think about the commonalities of the people you hired, what were they? And also, what were the cultural pillars that you were able to maintain to create that culture and yep. make it attractive? Yeah. So we have three core tenants in Intex. I put them in place pretty hardcore when I took on the CEO role. One is deliver on our commitments. So deliver on commitments, right? Do what you say you're going to do. Number two is don't wait, which is all about operating with urgency, right? If you see an opportunity or a problem, take an action, do something about it. And the third is operate with respect and consideration. And that third one is super critical. So I've been in seven companies, Some of the organizations might've actually done one and two, but people could not do three and be okay. At Nintex, if you can't do number three, you can't work at the company. And there were people at C-level roles all the way down through the most entry level role who couldn't do it. And even after we gave them good feedback, couldn't adjust, we got them out of the company. And so I would say at Nintex uniquely, the thing I would say that was the strongest of the places I've been is that not only were the people, are the people competent, but they are very good people who want to work in a super team-oriented way and are very positive. And so some of the things that happen in other companies in terms of the politics, the disrespect, the aggressive behaviors, we just, we don't tolerate. And that made a tremendous difference. Now, it also made it a place not every person who's good to work. There are people I work with at other places who I think highly of, who I would personally work with again in a certain situation but I would not have them in the culture. They might've been too abrasive. The thing I would say is that you've got to think through a little bit like where you put your people and where you get people. If you hire people in an environment like we're, so you and I, Brendan, are, are based effectively in the Seattle area, mm-hmm. super tier one city. It's got a lot of opportunity. That's not the way every other city in America or the rest of the world looks. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that are, are here and not all, but some are super mercenary, right? They will take a new job every two years No problem. The next phone call comes and it's a 40% raise, they're gone. That's not the kind of people we brought into Nintex. And I'm not saying it's the only thing. It was right for our company. So let me be really clear. There is many ways to create success. We had and have a formula that's working really well. And I think there's some things that could be learned about it and applied to other places. But I think you've got to be very intentional on what you're building. And, And we are super intentional about how we run the company. Yeah. Speaking of intentionality and urgency with early stage startups, we have, there's so few people typically, let's just say a typical series A company, it's got between 10 and 30 people. We make hires who we think are a good fit. And then 
fairly quickly, you realize maybe they're not the best fit. And then everyone has to make this trade-off of a huge cultural impact if you let them go fast. And I know you've made hard decisions when you were the CEO and you, you mentioned a lot of leadership change. What was sort of your philosophy around messaging to the rest of the team, to people that maybe you thought would be a good fit? Yeah. Number one, I stick with the truth. On all hard decisions, mm -hmm. I think sometimes people aren't transparent enough and they're not clear. They're not honest. The one story that never changes is the truth. And so stick with the truth and make hard decisions and make them quickly. The number one problem I've seen in CEOs, people don't make hard decisions. It's a human thing, right? We don't love change and we don't love difficult conversations, but failure to take hard decisions quickly then compounds. And then the hard decisions you have to take later are even worse. And so I would say, make hard decisions quicker and be clear. It is okay. Not every person fits. Not every person's going to last forever, but I would also do it in the right way that fits your company. We definitely had different had initiatives. Sometimes it didn't work at Nintex. And so there were seasons where we had to say, Hey, that initiative is it's just, it's not working and it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And we would try to redeploy people, but sometimes we didn't have roles for everyone. And so we would have to be clear that initiative we're no longer going to continue with. We've gotten people as many roles as we could, but this set of people is unfortunately going to be leaving the company. And we were clear on it. We had other people that just didn't fit. You tried to be clear and, and obviously respectful. So it goes back to respect and consideration, trying to think about that concept for us and for me personally in my own life has been really, really good. But make hard decisions, be clear, move fast. And since you've had this high growth startup experience, then going to a very profitable, and I would imagine Jive wasn't profitable or maybe was sort no. of a yeah, break even. How did you think about navigating cost as you were obviously at Jive, but then at Nintex where a private equity backed business is usually going to trade on some type of earnings multiple. So yeah. earnings growth was everything. Were there philosophies around spend like i know for a lot of our companies like their SaaS spend ballooned it like it just happens really really fast when you're growing quickly because you think hey this software is going to solve a personnel problem or make my humans more productive but then it ends up being a big cost and so that's just one example but how did you navigate that i mean it's just so easy to just keep spending more money to solve problems one concept i was thinking about this coming in today's call is i think you've got to be willing to constantly revisit the decisions you've made Right. A lot of things you're going to look up front, you're going to go through a business case, you're going to be thinking through and you're going to think around your trade-offs. So I think one thing we try to do is think holistically on our trade-offs and try to think of like that next, whatever, $100,000, what are the opportunities we have for it? And are we allocating that capital, that investment dollar to the best place? And one of the, the ways we did that, and even at Nintex scale today with say roughly 900 people, the senior leadership team throughout the budget process throughout the year, we were constantly looking at different things we could do as a team and where we make the trade off. So in a way that should be easier in a smaller organization, right? If you got 30 people, right, maybe right. there's only two or three key leaders, having that decision and being willing to do the best thing for the business, not the best thing for your function. That was critical. And in a lot of organizations I was in previously, people sometimes fought for their part more than the health of the whole thing. We very much had the attitude as senior leaders. The thing we're trying to drive is the best outcome for the company. Mm -hmm. That may not be the best thing for your group, right? You may trade a position or investment for some new technology or something with someone else. So I'd say that holistic view of them, the trade-offs, the revisiting them and being willing to go, hey, we made that investment, but actually it's not yielding what we thought. Relooking at the waypoints and bringing it back in.
let's circle back to growth then too. The best public software companies, they're getting a higher multiple on sales and marketing spend as they get bigger, right? Essentially, each person becomes less as a percentage of overall revenue, but that's hard to do in a startup because you've only got maybe three salespeople and they're performing really well. The last thing you want to do is say, hey, your comp is going down. And this tends to be the dilemma at every company, especially if you have the luxury of really good product market fit. And I'm sure you've seen this. How did you navigate just the comp structure with the GTM team as you you still had these earnings expectations? Yeah. So I would say one, I mean, I, I spent a couple of seasons of my life as a sales ops person. So I actually designed yeah. sales comp plans, worked with sales comp consultants. So the first thing I always go back is a step higher, which is, are you mapping the right distribution strategies to what you have? And so in a lot of companies, we tend to think about the direct to go hire some people. But even within that, there's different types of resources you apply. So the first thing I always think about in my sales leader hat is, am I mapping the right distribution strategy against what we need to do? And I always try to think through what interaction do I want to have with which buyer? What kind of level is it? What kind of level of sophistication? Making sure that we've got the right people against that and the right strategy. Because in some businesses, and I think you guys at Fuse have some examples of this, there's some alternatives, right? Not everything is rep-driven. There's people that sell online. There's people that sell with partners. There's people that sell with partners, but also sell direct. So I'd say number one is you're always trying to figure out, am I having the right strategy against what my opportunity really is? And then when you get into that, what behavior am I trying to drive? I think too often people jump to the comp plan. They don't think enough about the behavior. And so what we were always trying to do is drive behavior and then keep compliance simple. My, my other guiding thing is too many times I've seen, especially when you get people who have never been in sales, then whether it's a founder, a CEO, someone maybe with more of a technical background, and they want this over-engineered thing, but they don't think like a salesperson. And so keeping things simple, putting yourself in the shoes of the salesperson, and then going from there and really looking through those scenarios and then being willing to adjust and setting that expectation. Look, this comp plan is going to have this duration. Most companies I was at, we thought of them as a year. And we'd say, this is this year's comp plan. They will change over time. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And I'm going to tee you up here. And I, cause I think I, I know the answer, yeah. but I think it's good for people to hear. I was having dinner yesterday with another one of our investors and he used to run Microsoft Japan. And he said that he notified the team in Redmond that they're about to lose a big contract to some Japanese conglomerate. And Steve Ballmer hopped on a plane overnight, flew directly to the company to try to save the deal. And this was in like the late 90s, right? Or maybe early early 2000s. And that's just such a like a good reminder around how it's sort of everybody needs to be on the floor producing. What was your experience? You closed new business while still managing a you know, team because I'm sure it was a big focus. I looked at the role of CEOs, four parts. One is strategy, right? You guys set the direction for the company, get everybody aligned around where you're going. If you don't own the strategy and figure it out, then it's not going to work. So number one is that. Number two is you got to put the right team on the field. Three is you got to ensure that you're driving operational excellence and, and results. And four is the external. And so in that external bucket, the customers is massive. And I find for myself in the years I did both the CEO and CFO roles, the truth is in the field. And so every business is a little different, right? So maybe you've got a business that only yeah. sells on the phone. Well, then do your ride-alongs on the phone. But you've got to spend time with your team in front of the customers. And I would go out to the customers with a variety of people. I didn't always go out with the sales leader or the salesperson. Sometimes yeah. I meet with the customer success team. Sometimes I go out with a product leader. 
And spending that time in the reality of your business, that's where the truth is. And so the truth was not in my office in Bellevue. The truth is in the field. You have to spend time in the field. And I personally, I found it to be the most, one of the most rewarding and enjoyable parts of the role is being out there. Because uniquely, like who knows the business better than the CEO? Yeah. No one should. I mean, really, right? And yeah. You can best articulate the vision. You can get the best meeting. When I would go in the field, like at Nintex, we kind of evolved up the stack over time. But towards the last few years I was there, I could go out and I could get I could get a meeting with a CIO, a COO at big places. Mm-hmm. My team generally could not. So that is extremely powerful for your team. And it's also really motivating, right? They see you tell the story. They see you drive this better outcome. And that gives them a lot of wind in their sails and a lot of increase in belief and conviction. Yeah. The truth is in the field. All right. I love this. This is a perfect quote for the podcast. You've been able to maintain, I'd say when we met, obviously you were running Nintex, you had great energy, positivity, 20, 25 years of operations, a hardcore growth. How were you able to maintain that balance of health and family and wellness? For me, it starts with the philosophy. So I'm not the person and I mean, just speak for me. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to be different than this, but for me, I'm not the person who the only thing mattered was business success. So I do have peers and friends and people who literally their career is the only thing and everything else is below it. And that's one way to do it. That wasn't for me. And so I always try to think holistically of myself as a person and my my obligation to my family. My number one obligation is to my family. Mm -hmm. And so I've been married since the first year out of college. So I've been married the entire adult life. My wife and I have two kids. I do not want to look back on it and be older and super rich and have a destroyed family that I was never going to let that happen. And so along the journey, there are definitely times where I had to miss things, which is impossible not to, right? But I tried to be pretty intentional. And so I got pretty ruthless as time went on, on scheduling, on understanding when the kids or my family had important things. I also think it is super important you keep yourself up. I don't believe like I wasn't paid to work 80 hours a week and, and just running around and do tasks. That's not the role. What I was paid was for my head and for my ability to think and lead and create outcomes extended through the leverage of our team. That means I have to feel good, right? And feeling good is my family has to be in the right place. I have to have my health. So prioritizing your sleep, your workouts. And look, there's times when those things suffer a bit. And when you're flying red eyes all over the world, that's not the easiest, but I'll give you an example. I would land in Australia. I would land in London. I would land in Germany. First thing I would do when I got off the plane is I would go get a workout. Because if I'm not keeping my body up, then my brain doesn't work right. My brain doesn't work right. Then the unique value I can bring is there. So for me personally, it was that scheduling, that intentionality around, around what I was doing. And I think it also set a really good example to the group because people knew in the business, like I still coached kids sports. Like a lot of people would say like, how could you do that? Well, I could do that because I scheduled my time, right? I hired great people, made clear what we were doing, was willing to delegate and let people, let people be their best selves. Don't overfunction. You don't need to do someone else's job, do your job. And so that, that is a lot of what I thought about. It's worked for me. I'm not going to, we're all different. I don't mean to judge others, but for our family and myself, I was not going to let this be the only thing. And I actually think it worked better. I think I was out better. I think I had more freshness. My brain works better. And I still have energy. Like, I don't know what I will do next. I need to think about it a bit, but I know that I'm at the top of my game and I have a lot of energy and I have my health. 
So. Yeah, that's a that's a great overview. One more kind of to piggyback on that, which is the delegation and the room to run and, and do their jobs. There's a fine line on that. You're almost like the bumpers at the bowling alley with the kids. How did that evolve when you with management of employees as you got more experience? Pretty early on, I think I was maybe I was maybe like 27. I was probably pretty good sized company. I was a director of finance and accounting for a big part of the the group, and maybe had a 30 person group. So. Most of my career, I managed larger groups of people on up into the several hundreds with lots of layers. And early on, I realized the value of you got to have the right people mm-hmm. and you got to get people aligned and then you got to let them do their work. Really good people don't want to be micromanaged. And so with really good people, which I was blessed along the journey to work with a lot of really good people who are really effective, great people want to do more and they want to work with someone who they feel is there. I mean, I, I believe strongly in servant leadership. Yeah, I was there to help them be their best. They don't work for me. We work together. And so that approach has allowed me to have some people on the team. Like on the Nintex team in the last five years when I was CEO, we had three times we had people that had been CEOs before. We had multiple times where we had people who clearly wanted to do more and will do more in their career. Yeah. And they would come be in the company. If I had been a micromanager, they would have never come to the company. Right. But because they knew they could do their part and I'd be super supportive and could add value, that great people want to be in that kind of situation. And so I think you got to think about who you are, what kind of people you want to be on the team, and you got to operate accordingly. I find great people want space, they want help, but they don't need to be micromanaged. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Vikram, who runs a business of ours called Pictory, he says, can you please repeat the three core values you talked about? Sure. Deliver on our commitments, don't wait, and operate with respect and consideration. I think it's 11 words. My philosophy on those, so when you talk about core values or core tenants, I think they need to be very specific. They need to be short enough that they are memorable, and you need to drive them through the business. And so if I was to look back at the 25 years I worked, in the three best things I ever did, that is one of the three, was putting really specific core tenants that were memorable, they were real, they were right for our business, and I drove them really hard. That created a lot of the culture and it created a way we could articulate it to others and have other people follow. And we could always point back to and people would. And I speak about them and and did speak about them a ton. So that is something I would strongly encourage. Don't outsource it to your HR team. Don't run a think tank. Don't just put them on your wall and never use them. That's a waste of time. Don't do that. You got to own them. And whether it's a founder, CEO, or CEO that's brought into the business, they have got to be driven and owned by that person and their team. Michael Lee from Ariel, how do you want a good individual contributor is ready to be a manager? A lot of times in the business, I would have people younger that were on their way up say, hey, I want to do what you do. Mm-hmm. And then one of the first questions I always ask someone is why? And why do you want to be a manager? Why do you want to be a leader? And the reason I do that is what I'm looking for is a very specific thing. It is someone who wants to help make other people better and bigger. Mm-hmm. That's a person who should be a management. Someone who's like, oh, I'd like a bigger pay package or I want to be the boss. That is like a red flag for me. And I will have been discussions with them about how to think about it a little differently. So I think number one is what is their intent? I always try to get into the intent. And then the other thing, second thing I think about is I honestly think every time you first get a new role, so like the time you go from being an IC to a people manager, honestly, are any of us ever ready for our new thing? Maybe, maybe not. not. 
because the first time you do something, it's the first time you do it. And generally you need some help. So I think the other thing I would think about Michael on, on this one is what are you going to do as an organization or as that person's manager to help ensure they're successful? I know when I was a new manager and like with our new leaders, we would have different forms of training. Some of it we brought in-house, some of them we'd send them external. We have books, we have people read. I mean, what are we going to do to help that person be an effective leader? And, and I know I can remember going to first time supervisor training 24 years ago. I can remember a lot of books I read along the way. You, mm-hmm. You've got to invest. It's not intuitive. It's the same way I feel about marriage. Those of us who are married, it's not easy. They don't teach it in college. So you got to invest in yourself. Otherwise, you're probably going to have some problems. That's a great overview. Well, thank you again, Eric. This was amazing. The truth is in the field. I'm out in the field. Everyone's in the field. This is great. Really appreciate it, Eric. Awesome. Happy to join Brendan and good luck to everybody on the team. I want everybody to do amazing and love seeing people win. So if there's ever anything I can do to help anybody, just let me know. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Eric and Brendan. As always, we appreciate you joining us and we'll see you on the next one.